Well, I hope this morning you have your Bible with you. If you don't, feel free to grab one of the pew Bibles. Whatever the case, I want to invite you to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to have you turn to two passages. The first passage is Psalm chapter 23, and I want to have you hold your finger there. That's where we'll spend uh, most of this morning. But while you're holding your finger in Psalm chapter 23, I also want to have you turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. When you get to Psalm 100, would you look with me at verse 3? Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Last week, we learned a little bit about these sheep. We learned that sheep get lost. We learned that sheep have a a propensity to wander. We learned that sheep are vulnerable creatures. And in this study that we have entitled, The Lord is My Shepherd, we, we have spent a great deal of time not only learning about the sheep, but we have also devoted our time to learn about the shepherd and the relationship that the shepherd has with those sheep. Last week, the heading that we uh, set forth before you was the profile of the shepherd. And we learned that the, the sheep simply belong to the shepherd. The sheep belong to the shepherd. And look once again at Psalm chapter 100, verse 3. And this one isolated verse makes this reality that the the sheep belong to the shepherd abundantly clear. I want you to, just for a moment, pay very close attention to the personal pronouns. I want you to see, first of all, that we are His That's something that would be very easy to skip over reading Psalm chapter 100. But again, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and what? We are His. As I said last week, that's a very unpopular message, especially to a postmodern American mindset. You see, many Americans, if not most Americans, have this mindset that My body belongs to me. And I want, by way of introduction, to have you understand as we we walk through Psalm chapter 23, that the sheep belong to the shepherd. We not only see that the sheep belong to the shepherd, we also notice in Psalm 100 verse 3 that we are His people. In fact, just take a minute and read through verse 3, just quickly, and notice all the, the he's and the his. We are his, we are his people, and then finally, that last little section of the sentence, we see that we are the sheep of what? His pasture. We learned, moreover, that the sheep loves to lead his sheep. Last week we learned that the sheep, uh, rather, the shepherd seeks out the sheep. If one of the sheep gets lost, if one of the sheep begins to wander, if one of the sheep goes astray, it is the passion of the shepherd to search out and find that lost sheep. Again, the, the shepherd has a passion to rescue that sheep who finds himself in danger. And the exciting thing is, not only does the shepherd search out and rescue that lost sheep, but he he raises up that sheep and brings that sheep back to a place of usefulness. And the same holds true in our lives. Some of you know that to be the case, is you have wandered far away from the shepherd, and something very interesting happened. One day you woke up and you found the shepherd's staff around your neck. And you realized that the shepherd was drawing you back to himself. And that's a, a gracious process that takes place. Again, we learn that the, the shepherd has a passion to feed his sheep. The shepherd protects the sheep. The shepherd preserves the sheep. And then this is the, the fundamental reality. This is at the, the top, the very tippy-tippy top of Mount Everest. When we learn about the relationship to the shepherd and the sheep, we learn that the shepherd dies for the sheep. Can you imagine? 
Our chief shepherd died for us. Now this morning, we want to move from the profile of the shepherd to the promises of the shepherd. And these are promises that have the power to sustain us. These are promises that have the power to encourage us and liberate us and and change us and revolutionize our lives. One of my favorite authors, a man who wields a great deal of influence in my life, is Dr. John Piper. And here's what Dr. Piper says about the promises of God. He says, The faith that grows in the ground of God's promises takes away fear and fills us with hope and confidence. And when fear goes away and hope in God overflows, notice, we live differently. Our lives show that our treasure in God is more precious than the fleeting attractions of sin. And so as we look at the promises of the shepherd in Psalm chapter 23, I want you to remember that these promises are are not just words on a page. These promises that we will take the, the rest of our time this morning to study are not mere ink blots in your Bible. These promises have the power to transform. These promises have the power to bring relief to an agitated soul. Let me ask you, have you come this morning with an agitated soul? Have you come weak? Have you come discouraged? Have you come lonely? Do you wrestle with fear? Do you wrestle with anxiety? These promises have the power to revolutionize and change your life. These are promises that, that calm the restless soul. These are promises that, that literally bring well-being. These are promises that have the power to liberate. And so we want to take the rest of our time and, and scope out and examine these promises. And so with your Bible in your hands, would you stand with me as we read Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 to 6. And the focus of our study this morning will be verses 2 and 3. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Uh, this image that we find in Psalm chapter 23, and we recognize that it's more than just a mere image. It's more than a metaphor. It's, it's reality for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, serves as our shepherd. And he has a, a passion to, to feed us and protect us and to, to love us and to nurture us and rescue us. And I know that some have come this morning with, with souls that are agitated, souls that are weary, souls that are hurting And so I I pray that the Word of God, that the reality of the Word of God would affect many people today. That we would see and savor the promises of the shepherd that emerge very especially in verses 2 and verse 3. And so God, would you be so kind to come and, and be with us today? Would you encourage your people? Would you strengthen them according to the riches of your grace? And if there's anyone here that has never met the shepherd in a personal way, may that encounter take place. We recognize that we can't convince people to fall in love with the shepherd. We can't persuade them to fall in love with the shepherd. Rather, it's a sovereign work of grace where you turn a, a hardened heart into a heart that beats with passion for the truth of your word and for the shepherd in particular. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come that you would fill this place and you would encourage this, your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
This morning, as we look at the promises of the shepherd, I want to to anchor this thought in your mind, and it will run through the rest of the message. I, I want you to remember these shepherds as the unshakable promises of the shepherd. The unshakable promises of the shepherd. These are promises that can never go away. These are promises that will never go away. These are promises that, for, that are true for every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. To keep within the metaphor, to keep within the analogy, these are promises that are true for every sheep, for every little lamb who follows and believes and trusts in the shepherd. Here's the first promise I want you to see. The first unshakable promise is that the shepherd enables us to rest The shepherd enables us to rest. Look at verse 2. Psalm chapter 23, verse 2. Just the first sentence. The Word of God says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, a a sheep, you see, is a remarkable creature. A sheep is a remarkable creature. One writer says this, Because of their makeup, It is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. I want you to hear this very clearly. Most of us know that sheep tend to be obstinate. They're unreliable. We've seen they get lost. Sometimes they're a little confused. We sang a song about rocks in our head. Every sheep I've ever met has rocks in his or her head, right? And that's how you and I were before we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes those rocks are still up there, if you know what I'm saying. Well, here we see that with a, a, a literal sheep, there are four requirements. And this comes from the pen of one who actually served as a shepherd most of his adult life. Four requirements need to be met in order for that sheep to literally lie down. First of all, He says, because they are timid, they must be free of all fear. If the sheep is filled with fear, the sheep will stand up and will resist lying down. Second, they must be free from all tension. Because of social behavior, this writer says, they must be free from friction with others of their kind. That is to say, if the sheep aren't getting along with one another, they will stand tall. And they will refuse to lie down. Third, they must be free from aggravation. If tormented by flies or parasites, the sheep will not lie down. And most of us can understand that in our lives by way of practical application. Before I left this morning to come to church, I said goodbye to to Jereen, and I noticed that there was a, a soul fly in our room. I don't know about you, but flies drive me insane. And I always try to do the Mr. Miyagi thing. You know what I'm talking about? Karate Kid fans. Right? With the chopsticks, that never works. And so I try the next best thing. Right? I just gave up. Needless to say, I didn't rest before I left. That's what it's like with a literal sheep. If, if the flies and the parasites are flying around their heads... They won't lie down. Finally, they must be free from hunger. And these are four requirements that need to be met or a a literal sheep will refuse to lie down. Well, the Word of God tells us to you and I who are sheep that He makes us lie down in green pastures. Isn't that interesting? He makes us lie down in green pastures. And there is a doctrine that I, I can't think of any other doctrine that is more comforting for agitated, lonely, discouraged, frustrated, anxious, depressed sheep than the doctrine of God's providence. The doctrine of providence. And there are many ways to define this doctrine, but I want to to cut through all the theological fog, and I want to read to you a statement from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in days of old is is a catechism that parents would have their children memorize. And I think there's... There's a lesson in that for us. If you have young children, this is something you might want to consider. Sitting down and having your children memorize these kinds of theological statements. They are powerful. And here's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says about providence. It says, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures in all their actions. 
God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. I want to unpack that for you just for a moment. First, God's providential activity is holy and wise. I want to ask a question that might get under your skin a little bit, but have you ever been mad at God? Has something ever taken place in your life where you were a little bit frustrated with God or sometimes you might come to the point of shaking your fist at God? I've heard Christian writers say, hey, if you're mad at God, he knows it anyway. Go out in the cornfield and scream. Yell at him. Get it out. I don't know if you've ever heard that advice before. That is the most horrible advice I've ever heard in my life is if we find ourselves in a position where we're yelling at God, we're saying, you are not a good God. You are not a holy God. You are not a wise God, and I will shake my fist in your face. Rather, the doctrine of providence teaches us that His works are altogether holy. His works are altogether wise. Psalm chapter 118 says, Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It's a stop there and just pause, meditate on that. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Does anyone like that? Oh, he does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Evidently, the psalmist was really fixated on that for him to say it twice. Suffice it to say, God's providential activity, everything that comes to pass from his perspective is holy and wise. There's a second statement that emerges in the catechism. Namely, God's providential activity is powerful. Now, I'm assuming you have your Bibles to Psalm chapter 23. Would you do this and and turn the page or maybe even stay on the same page and look with me at Psalm 24? Because in Psalm chapter 24, beginning in verse 4, or rather Psalm 29, I'm sorry, you might have to turn one or two pages. In Psalm 29, beginning in verse 4, we see this powerful declaration of the providence of God. Look at it with me. Psalm 29.4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. I don't know about you, but this is not a God I want to go out to the cornfield and shake my fist at. Verse 6, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a, a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The the, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Most of you know what is happening in the next couple weeks. I believe it's August 21st, uh, off a day or so, is we have this eclipse coming. Is anyone ready for the eclipse? Great. One person. And I'm right there with you. I can't wait for the eclipse, right? Let me encourage you. When you view the eclipse with protective glasses, right? Just remember that a sovereign and providential God is ordaining all these things to take place. It is, it is God who stands behind the eclipse. It is God who, who holds the planets where they are. It is God who holds the, the stars where they are. It is God who ordains everything that comes to pass. Indeed, His providential control is absolutely powerful. Then I want you to see that God's providential activity is comprehensive and extensive. I want to have you turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And while you're turning there, I'll give a a brief advertisement that, Lord willing, after we're done with a, a series that will go from the first week of September through the end of October... 
And just imagine what, what th- that series is going to involve. Hint, hint. October 31st, 1517. You figure it out. After that series, Lord willing, we're going to turn our attention to the book of Ephesians. And so... Ephesians 1.11, we'll just scan quickly now, but my suspicion is we'll take a whole hour to walk through verse 11 when we get there. But notice here, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will. Here I merely want you to see that God's providential activity is comprehensive and extensive. He works not some things according to the counsel of His will. God works what? All things according to the counsel of His will. Indeed, His providential activity is comprehensive and extensive. And I want you to see that God's providential activity is for the good of His people. His providential activity is for the good of His people. And you know Romans chapter 8 verse 28 very well. We read that we know that for those who love God, that He works all things together for good. For whom? For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. John Frame says it like this, Nothing is more important than for God's people to be firmly convinced that Scripture teaches God's effectual, universal control over the world. And He teaches it again and again and again. From Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, we see the doctrine of God's providence. When we, when we begin to understand and embrace God's providential controls over every single event in the universe, then and only then can we find rest. It is only when we come to grips with the providence of God that we can come to the point where we can rest. And it is God, of course, it is the shepherd, of course, who enables us to rest. Jesus said it like this, And I want you to imagine that you're standing at the feet of Jesus, that you're one of His friends, you're one of His disciples, and you're restless. And your soul is filled with grief. You're filled with anxiety. You're filled with fear. Your your heart is broken. And Jesus just comes up to you. And I can just see Jesus kneeling on one knee and putting His hand on, on your shoulder. And He says this, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to ask once again, have you come with a, with a restless heart? Do you, along with me from time to time, battle fear? Fear of the future, fear of failure, fear of death, fear of what's it going to be like when I'm 90 years old? What will I not be able to do anymore? Fear of what's going to happen in your family, fear of of where your job's going to go, where your career's going to go, fear of where you'll go to school, fear of who you're going to marry. Does Does thinking about fear of the future have you tied in knots? The questions go on and on and on. Well, the shepherd makes an important observation, rather a promise for us in verse 2 that you can bank on. He says this, and I hope whenever you read Psalm chapter 23, you'll never forget this morning. He says this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That is to say, he enables this obstinate, wandering, rock-headed sheep. Are you with me? The shepherd enables that sheep to rest. He enables that sheep to rest. John. Yes, sir. Yes, they were. Absolutely. And they were sheep. Absolutely. Appreciate that. We move from this first and powerful principle 
that this shepherd enables us to rest. I want you to see another really important promise that emerges in the second part of verse 2. 2B, two you might say. And here's what we learned. He extinguishes our spiritual thirst. The shepherd extinguishes our spiritual thirst. Why do I say this? Verse 2B says, He leads me beside still waters. As I studied this passage, I learned something that I was not familiar with prior uh, to studying it. But I learned that a sheep is comprised of 70% water. As I drive down the road, as I drive down the Everson Goshen Road, and you see those sheep, and you start to look at it, and you start to go, huh, why didn't I notice that before? Right? 70% water. One writer says that water determines the vitality, strength, and vigor of the sheep and is essential to its health and general well-being. Well, most of you probably know that the human body now, the other kind of sheep, is comprised of 65 to 75% guess, water. And like sheep, the, the water in our bodies determines our, our physical well-being. Here's what the survival experts tell us. They tell us that a human being can live for three minutes without air. If you've ever seen me try to hold my breath underwater, it's more like three seconds. But some of you are probably better at it. This writer says the human being can live underwater for three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. But when we fail to receive a proper amount of water, our bodies become dehydrated. Some of the symptoms are a dry mouth, or your body's filled with lethargy, or you have muscle weakness, or you get a headache, or you get dizzy, or a combination of all those things. And I don't think I've ever been dehydrated until we went to Southern California last Christmas. And we spent three or four days at the amusement parks. And I remember uh, Doreen and I were having fun with our, our, our Fitbits and kind of tracking our, our miles. And, and we, we walked upwards of 60 miles in those three days. That's a lot of miles. And looking back, I didn't think of it at the time because I, I, I'm very wired, type A, let's get it done, right? And I just want to get on the ride, ride the ride, go to the next one. I kind of forget to do something really important. It's called drink water. Well, we went day one, day two, day three, day four, took a day off, got on the plane, went home. And on the plane, I remember sitting on the plane in Anaheim going, man, my stomach feels weird. And I got to thinking, wait, I didn't have breakfast. I had a cup of coffee and coffee doesn't make anyone sick. So something's going on here. Coffee soothes the stomach. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what was going on. We got in the air. I was sitting next to my dad. My dad fell asleep. The pain in my stomach became so severe, I was praying, God, if you want this plane to crash, it would be fine with me. I mean, it hurt that bad. I would rather crash right now than endure this pain. It was like, it was like someone was, was, was stabbing my stomach with knives. They were cutting it open with razor blades. Well, what does every person that experiences something like that in 2016 do? You go home and you Google it, right? Why was my stomach hurting so bad? Da, 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 da. And it only took a few minutes for me to realize, man, you dummy, you didn't drink hardly any water. You got dehydrated. Well, that's what happens. Now think about your spiritual life. When, when we go without food or drink, that is when we go without the Word of God, when we neglect the means of grace, when we say church attendance is not important anymore, that I'll, I'll do what I want to do, our souls begin to get thirsty our souls began to get thirsty. The psalmist tells us this, the shepherd extinguishes our thirst. That is, he leads me beside still waters. St. Augustine understood that our deepest thirst is the thirst for God. He said, O Lord, O Lord, thou hast created us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. A French physicist by the name of Pascal agrees and likens the human heart to an infinite abyss that can only be filled by an infinite and unchangeable object. That is to say, God himself. God is the only one who can, who can fill that void in our souls. 
Now notice the role that the shepherd plays here. Notice the role in Psalm chapter 23. He leads us. And where does he lead us? He leads us, and this is key, he leads us to the inexhaustible fountain. He leads us to the fountain that never runs dry. I remember Jonathan Edwards said something once when when I first read it, and I probably said it from this pulpit numerous times, but I forgot about it. He said this, There is no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. And you're probably like me, like, what? Think about it. There is no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. In other words, if you, if you go into, into the city of Seattle and you find a, a fountain, and they're all over in Seattle, and you see this fountain is... Right? You think to yourself, huh. Well, by definition, that's what fountains do. And so that's why Edward says there is no deficiency in a fountain that it should overflow. And where does the shepherd leads us? lead us? He leads us to the... To the ever-flowing fountain. He leads us to the inexhaustible fountain. Psalm chapter 42 says this, and see if it describes the, the cry of your heart. As a deer pants... Do you have the image in your mind? As the deer pants... Can I have a young person? If you're under the age of 10, will you stand up? Anyone under the age of 10? Would you stand up? Would you guys... And I promise you won't get in trouble for doing this. Would you show me what panting looks like? What does a deer panting look like? Be real graphic. Come on, act it out. What's a panting deer look like? You can do it. There it is! Thank you! Is that Noah back there? Do I see it? Right? That's a panting deer. And here's the image. Thank you. Here's the image the psalmist leaves us with. As a deer pants. As he pants... For flowing streams, so my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? O God, earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you out. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. We're spiritually thirsty. Psalm 36 says, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from your river of delights. And so my question this morning, are you spiritually dehydrated? Are you spiritually dehydrated? And what does it look like to be spiritually dehydrated? To be spiritually dehydrated means that you're living a life that is void of the Word of God. This is a life that is prayerless, a life that is wordless, a life that is joyless, a life that is influenced rather by the things of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is a life that is filled with cheap substitutes. And we have cheap substitutes everywhere we look in our culture. There are people competing for our attention. There are worldviews that are competing for our attention. There are professors in the university who are competing for our attention. The cure for spiritual dehydration, then, is this. Returning to the shepherd. That's the cure for spiritual dehydration. To return to the shepherd. And when you return to the shepherd, here's what he promises to do. He will lead you beside still waters. The shepherd alone will extinguish your thirst. Not a Christian conference, not a Christian book, not a friendship, not even a church. It is the shepherd who extinguishes your thirst. Promise number three. Would you look at uh, Psalm chapter 23 once again with me at verse 3. Psalm chapter 23, verse 3. Here's what the psalmist says. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. That is to say, He energizes our spiritual lives. The shepherd energizes our spiritual lives. And here we need to wrestle with two words as we look at Psalm chapter 23. We need to wrestle with the word soul. Do you see it in verse 3? And also wrestle with the word restore. First of all, the soul. What exactly is a soul? A soul is, is who we are. It's the, it's the inner life of a person. It's you at the most most deep and foundational level. I think we all know that. But what's it mean to restore? 
To restore something or someone means to to turn back. It means to, to turn around. It means to revive. It means to reform. And so here's something the psalmist admits that I, I think 100% of us can relate to. There are times in our Christian lives when everything's out of whack. Can you relate to that? Everything's just out of whack. It's like... the. My Bible reading has gone by the wayside. My, my prayer life has gone by the wayside. My, my relationship with my family has gone by the wayside. Everything's just kind of mixed up, and we've all been there. There are times when we, simply put, forget our first love. There are times when the lure of the world has promised to be too big of a deal in our lives, and we succumb to those temptations. There are times when our our souls feel like they've shriveled past the point of no return. Here are the symptoms of a shriveled soul. Some of you are probably here and you say, Pastor, I I don't need the symptoms. I, I know what it's like to have a shriveled soul. But if you haven't experienced it, know that this is what it looks like. You're a person who is hopeless. You're a person who is is paralyzed by fear. You're a person who have affections that have been totally numb. That is to say, nothing makes you happy anymore. I remember this began to happen in my life seven or eight years ago. I can't remember if I told Jereen this or not, but I remember I thought it in the back of my mind. I was just, for several weeks, I was just wrestling. and There there was something going on. I remember I went to my buddy's house and I played ping pong. Man, I love ping pong. It's so fun. Anyone like ping pong? We played ping pong for a couple of hours, and I got back to my car, and I was just like, that was no fun at all. And I thought, something's wrong. I don't like ping pong. That would be like playing a round of golf and going, that wasn't any fun at all. Well, if you play a round of golf and you don't have any fun, some, something's happening in your soul. Something's happening when something you normally love to do doesn't bring you any joy or delight at all. When we become spiritually lazy... When the the spiritual disciplines get set aside, I'm so encouraged and excited that some of you have taken up the challenge to read Colossians every day for a month. And Ken is right. If you haven't started it yet, start today. Start today and get up in the morning and read four chapters of Colossians. Can you imagine what happens at the end of that month? You will have read Colossians 30 times. And those of you that are doing it know it's not a big time commitment. It's not a big deal. I remember I had an appointment in Marysville last week, and I, got up, I had to get up at 4.15 in the morning to go to this appointment. I finished my appointment about 9.30. I thought, th- thought to myself, I haven't read Colossians yet. So what do you think I did on the way back from Marysville to Bellingham? I read it on my phone because the law hadn't kicked in yet. Right? No, I didn't read it on my phone. <laughs> I listened to it on my phone. And what a delight. It's the only time during this month that I've... Actually, listen to someone else read the book of Colossians to me. And so we want to be careful with numb affections. We want to be careful with spiritual laziness. And it is precisely at this point that we need to bank on the the promise of the shepherd to trust him to restore our souls. One of the telltale signs of a shriveled, weak soul is this. And this might surprise you. One of the telltale signs that your soul is is shriveling and weak is when you begin to listen to yourself. You say, that that makes no sense at all. When you start to say things like this, yeah, I'm no good. Yeah, I have no talent. Yeah, I'm a horrible Christian. Yeah, I'm never going to make it. We're all doomed. Nothing's going to work in my life. That is, you begin to listen to yourself. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In his book, Spiritual Depression, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some have called Lloyd-Jones the last of the Puritans. He went to be with the Lord in 1981, one of my favorite writers. And here's what he says. He says, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself Instead of talking to yourself. And then he goes on and he gives us the prescription. He says this. You must turn on yourself. Upbraid yourself. Exhort yourself. And say to yourself, hope in God. 
instead of muttering on in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go and remind yourself of what God is, who He is, and what He is, and what He has done, and what He has pledged to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, and I like this. He says, defy yourself. Defy other people. Defy the devil and the whole world. And say with the psalmist, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the help of my countenance and my God. Psalm chapter 42, verse 11. Here is the promise of the shepherd. He says, I will restore your soul. That is, I will energize your spiritual life. So this morning, would you do this exercise with me? Would you take inventory of your soul this morning? I think that Christians have grown accustomed to wearing masks, and I I think we're experts at it, especially at church. How you doing, brother? Oh, really good. God's really blessing my life. How you doing, sister? Oh, couldn't be better. And deep down, you are dying. Right? And so let's get accustomed at Christ Fellowship. If someone says, how you doing? And you're dying, say, could we sit down and talk over a cup of coffee? Because I'm dying. And I need someone to sit with me to encourage me. If you were to peel back a few layers and show a trusted friend the real you. This is the real you, not the... You, the real you, what's going on deep down under that skin, what would they find? Would they find a a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman who is tired and worn out? Would they find that you're you're fed up with the Christian race? Would they find that you are, are disillusioned by how you've been treated in church? Would they find a lack of devotion, a lack of desire, a lack of discipline? Would they find that you're hooked on pornography? Would they find that you're mean-spirited or judgmental? Would they find that you're discouraged or lonely or filled with anxiety or any combination of any of those things? This morning, as you take inventory of your soul, I want to encourage you to, to tell, most importantly, to tell the shepherd about the condition of your soul and ask him for something very special. Ask him to restore you. Ask Him to energize your spiritual life and propel you into the future by His grace and for His glory. Spurgeon says it like this, When the soul grows weary, He revives it. When it is sinful, He sanctifies it. When it is weak, He strengthens it. He does it. He restoreth my soul. And so Spurgeon says, are any of us low in grace? Do we feel that our spirituality is at its lowest ebb? He who turns the ebb into the flood can soon restore our soul. Pray to him then for the blessing. Restore thou me, thou shepherd of my soul. And when you ask the shepherd to restore your soul, do you know what he does? He does it. He restores your soul. He energizes your spiritual life. Finally, notice at the end of verse 3. That this shepherd encourages godly living. Look at verse 3 with me. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Philip Keller, a former shepherd, says, Sheep are notorious creatures of habit. If left to themselves, they will follow the same trails until they become ruts. They will graze the same hills until they turn into desert wasteland. They will pollute their own ground until it is corrupt with disease and parasites. Now think of your own life. We as the sheep of God, left to ourselves, we are likely to stray. Prone to leave the God I love. We are independent. We are stiff-necked. We are a proud people. And so Philip Keller says the greatest single safeguard which a shepherd has in handling his flock is to keep them on the move. 
They must be, there must be a predetermined plan of action, a deliberate planned rotation from one grazing ground to another in line with the right and proper principles of sound management. And so the shepherd, you see, leads you and I in paths of righteousness. Do you see it there? He leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads us on paths that are for our own good. He leads us on paths that are consistent with his character. Have you ever been in your Christian life and wondered why you were at a particular place? When Jereen and I, when, when the Lord sent us to Legrand back in 2000, I grew up in Thurston County, a fairly large area. We go to Legrand, and they didn't have a Starbucks. I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever experienced. It was so small. I'd go to the grocery store. If you've ever seen me shop, I'm like, boom, 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 right? Go to the grocery store. It's just like, dun, 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 dun. Oh, man, lady, get a move on, man. Drove me insane. Lord, what, what, why did you bring us to LeGrand? This is driving me nuts. Need a bigger area, right? More people, more to do. Then the Lord calls us to Everson. I remember about two months into it, I was driving down the road with my windows down, smelling the smell, going, what in the world is that? That smells horrible. And I remember I had this chuckle on my face, like I said to the Lord, I literally said this, God, you really have a sense of humor, don't you? Because <laughs> I was like way in the middle of nowhere. So we went from really small to really, really, really super duper small. And so you ask, why... why? Why does God have you where he has you? Well, he leads us on paths that are for our own good. He leads us on paths that are consistent with his character. And if you're paying close attention, you notice I did not read the whole verse. Notice he leads us in paths of righteousness for a specific reason. And the reason might come as a bit of a shock to you. The aim of the shepherd's leadership is this. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake, for his name's sake, the goal you see of the Christian life is to glorify God. John Piper says the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He stands supreme at the center of his own affections. For that reason, he is a self-sufficient and inexhaustible fountain of grace. Then we ask, what is the highest aim in our lives? The highest aim in our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, these are just a few of the unshakable promises of the shepherd. Namely, He enables us to rest. He extinguishes our thirst. He energizes our spiritual lives. He encourages godly living. I want to ask, are, are you banking on the promises of God today? Or are you a shepherd who has wandered far away? Are you a shepherd who decided, I'm going to chart my own course? Or rather, are you a sheep who decided, I'm going to chart my own course? Are you a sheep who's decided, I'm going to eat what I want to eat? I, I'm tired of 66 books. I'm going to eat Nietzsche. I'm going to eat Kant. I'm going to eat worldly ideology. I'm going to eat Joseph Fletcher. I'm going to eat these kinds of things that the world wants to feed me. I want to encourage you to cast yourself on the mercy of the chief shepherd and to trust in his all-sufficient grace. Why? Because he is a faithful shepherd. He is a loving shepherd. He is a merciful shepherd. And here's the, the great thing. He has your best interests in mind. When you fear, when you fret, when you grow anxious, know this, the shepherd has your best interests in mind. And the shepherd also says something that is fascinating. In John chapter 10, we read this. Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not in this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Some of you this morning are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, 
You are not a sheep. You have not been called by God yet, but the Lord is calling you. He has your number. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, he invites you into the fold. He welcomes you into his family. The Lord Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who never uttered a vile word, who never committed sin. He was, he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He went all the way to the cross and he bore the sins of everyone who would ever believe on Calvary's, Calvary's cross. And then he was buried in the ground and three days later the Father raised him from the dead. And he offers eternal life to anyone who will say, I trust you. I turn from my sins and I trust you. I find all my satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you place your trust in Jesus, you become an automatic recipient of his promises. Did you know that if you're not a sheep, these promises don't apply to you right now? But the second you become a follower of Jesus, these promises all apply to you. When you battle fear, the shepherd will enable you to rest. This shepherd will extinguish your spiritual thirst. When you grow weary, when you grow discouraged, this shepherd will energize your spiritual life. And this shepherd will encourage a godly life. And I'm convinced of this. Only when you cast all your hope and future on the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme shepherd, will you be able to utter these words with David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Will you pray with me? Father, once again, thank you for, for these promises, promises that we have uh, really only begun to scratch the surface of. And so I pray that as we come back next week and learn more of, of these amazing promises, that you would fill our hearts with wonder, that you would fill our, our hearts with a desire to, to know you more, that we would be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our shepherd. Thank you for your watch care over us. Thank you for tracking us down when we get off on the wrong track. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for feeding us. Thank you for being our friend. Thank you for being our Savior. Would we find uh, all our satisfaction in you? May we rest in you. We thank you for these promises today. Amen.